please turn with me in your Bibles to the Revelation, chapter 3. The Revelation, chapter 3. This is not a book of revelations. It is a book of one revelation from Jesus Christ to John the Apostle, through whom he addresses the churches in Asia Minor, which are listed in our study, the seven churches in the last decade of the first century A.D., designed by our Lord to prepare those churches and all his church throughout this era for the realities of this world and the world to come. We have been in the midst of a study of the letters that were included in this lengthy letter, our small book, as almost as prefaces to the seven churches from the Lord. And we are now considering the letter of our Lord to the church in Philadelphia. So please follow with me as I read Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens and none shall shut, and that shuts and none opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you a door opened, which none can shut, that you have a little power, and did keep my word, and did not deny my name. Behold, I give of the synagogue of Satan, of them that say they are Jews, and they're not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before your feet. And to know that I have loved you, because you did keep the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, that hour which is to come upon the whole world to try them that dwell upon the earth. I come quickly. Hold fast that which you have, that no one take your crown. He that overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out there no more. And I will write upon him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem. Which comes down out of heaven from my God. And mine own new name. He that has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, please pray with me as we one more time ask God to help us in considering this section of Scripture. Lord, we would not be vain and repetitious in our prayers, but we would confess publicly our utter dependence on you and our confession of our weakness. So now draw near, O Spirit of God, and address your people. May this church hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Submit and subdue our hearts to your truth and change the things that need to be changed in us. 
by the word that is preached. Give liberty and boldness to this your servant and hearing hearts to these who wait. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have considered in our study of this letter to the church in Philadelphia, which was perhaps the smallest and the weakest, at least humanly speaking, of all the seven churches in Asia Minor, very akin to the church in Smyrna, the poor little rich church. We've considered the author of the letter, the Lord Jesus himself, he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens and no one shuts, and he that shuts and no one opens. And we saw the magnitude of the identity of this person, the Lord Jesus. We saw his position in the place of the king, through whom alone men have access to God, who holds the key of the house of David, both as its prime minister, granting admittance to the king to whomever he wills, and as the king himself, who holds out the golden scepter only to those whom he wills. And then we also considered last time the comfort of the letter. Having seen the great author of the letter, we noticed the comfort that came to the church of Philadelphia in the words, I know your works. And we saw that this, in this case, that phrase, which is typical of all these letters, was not a disturbing reminder that he knew all their evil deeds and was about to judge them. But in this case, rather a comforting reminder that though all others might miss and not notice their achievement, their virtue, their faithfulness, though others may look down upon their relative weakness and smallness, though they may be seen as the literal off-scouring of the world by most, he knows and he sees and he rewards. And so we concluded last week with a warm and encouraging word to the churches like our own who have determined to stand in the truth. The Lord encourages them by saying, I know your works. You have kept my word. You have not denied my name. He knows it. He knows how true that is of us, and he knows whether it's altogether true or not, and he's not forgotten those that have taken the stand for his name. Now tonight we continue in our consideration of this letter in the third place by noticing the promise of the letter. The promise of the letter. The Lord, as is in the case in almost every instance in these letters, lays before his people certain promises, encouraging promises. And in this case, there's no difference. He says to these dear people that they have a little strength. In verse 8, in the middle of the verse, after the parenthetical clause, he says, you have little or a little strength. We may consider that what the Lord means by this is that though in so many ways the Philadelphian church was weak, that in this he sees an area of strength. A seemingly small thing to the world was not insignificant to our Lord. You have kept 
my word, and you did not deny my name. You have a little power. And I believe with some commentators that it's better to see this, not that the Lord is saying you are very... A pitiful little church that's just barely alive with a little breath left in you, and I commend you. I think what he's saying is that in the, in the eyes of men, you're considered to be really virtually nothing. But what I see that little thing in Philadelphia as being is not a little thing at all, but a little strength. It, what he's saying is you have power. It may seem relatively small, but it's power. It's strength. It looks little. It has a relative weakness about it. But the way I judge things, what you have, that little kernel of thing that the world sees as insignificant, is what it's all about. You have strength. And I'm not alone in that interpretation. So the Lord grants promises to this people. We may say, when with stern steadfastness against all opposition and pressure... We hold to the deposit of truth committed to us by the head of the church that in every case in which that is true, he has for us the highest regard and gives to us the firmest assurance of his blessing and protection. Now, brethren, we are living in a day, as I shared with the men yesterday in our meeting, in which the old Attacks against orthodoxy are in vogue again. It appears that virtually every generation there are men that rise up thinking they've come up with a new thought and a new view of Scripture, and they follow the train of the generations that have gone before them. Recently, you may have come across this Episcopalian bishop or Anglican, I'm not sure which. I don't want to accuse the wrong group, but this bishop who has stated publicly and in the print media, as well as on the morning news programs nationwide, that it is our great task today as leaders of the church to free the Bible from these fundamentalists like Jerry Falwell. And he made the statement, we must free the Bible from the Jerry Falwells of the world. Now, this church is not a fundamentalist church. However... We are in complete agreement with Jerry Falwell regarding the doctrine of Scripture. And we love his stand and appreciate his stand regarding the sanctity of the truth of the Bible. And what the bishop is saying is that we need to free the Bible from that kind of high view that Jerry Falwell is attempting to impose upon us innocent and pure and true Christians. Well, that's nothing new. This bishop wants to, in his words, excise from the Bible the passages that are no longer relevant, where Mr. Falwell would want to keep them. This bishop wants to take out all the sexism from the Bible. He wants to remove from the Bible its rampant anti-Semitism. He wants to take out of the Bible all the references to the things that are condemned that are now polluting this generation with death. He doesn't want to condemn homosexuality. So those texts would need to be excised. His concept of freeing the Bible is to cut pages out of it. 
His approach is to think that the Bible has a disease. And it's gotten into one of the limbs. And in order to save the Bible's life, we need to cut off a leg. We need to chop off a limb. His problem is not with Mr. Falwell. His problem is with the Bible. He's trying to free the Bible from itself. And a multitude of people like it and love to have it so. And they do not see the contrast and the contradiction between the two words in the same sentence of freeing the Bible and excising from it its texts. Very few people in our generation would call excision an approach to freedom. Most people would think that would be a negative approach to liberating anybody. And yet this noble bishop has taken this public stand and has already had Good Morning America at his doorstep. Thanks be to God that in my view, Mr. Falwell cleared himself nobly in the little debate that they had on the TV. I observed it and I thanked God for his courage as the last 10 or 12 seconds of the interview was constituted by Mr. Falwell preaching to this man to his face on the air and calling him to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and charging him to read the Bible which he wanted to free from the rest of us. I take my public stand with Mr. Falwell in this issue. But you see, Spurgeon said in his day, a hundred years ago, nothing new. He says, they tell us that it is the spirit of the age. They say we must keep abreast of the times. Mr. Spurgeon, a hundred years ago, was confronted by the identical heresy, the identical attack. It's nothing new. But that's the world in which we live. Now, you see, the problem here is not so much that the men who worship Allah in Islam are attacking our Bible. Not so much that the Hindus and the Buddhists and the atheists are against us. This is not a battle against the Madeleine Murray O'Hara's of our day. This is a battle against men who claim to be the leaders of the Christian church. These are men who, in the name of Christ, are trying to liberate the Bible from us who believe it. Us ignorant, uneducated, backwoods, narrow-minded, selfish people who are simple enough to think that if it's God's word, it's probably true. And these people are not new. It's been this way throughout history. But you see, they are hard to fight. Because they are believed by the general populace as representing the nobler and more educated form of Christianity. They are elegant. They are viewed as the acceptable part of Christianity. We are seen as this rabble who would limit everybody's freedom, who would ruin the world by shoving our religion down their throats. And so they rather look down on us and condescend to us ignorant types. And that's difficult to deal with because we come across as being reactionary, narrow, harsh, mean, and proud. But I tell you, that's similar to the problem that the brethren in Philadelphia had. And our Lord was dealing with that when he said, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. What was going on in Philadelphia was that there was a host of Jews in that city who had taken it upon themselves to attack that little church 
and had used all their economic power in that Asian city to ostracize and persecute this church. We don't know that at this time the Philadelphian church had come under literal physical persecution. We're not sure. But we do know that there was a strong Hebrew influence in the city and they used it to the max. And all the pressure was against this little church to compromise a bit, to conform and adjust to the spirit of the age and not cling to the name of Christ. Now, in their day, the central issue was this. You cannot enforce upon us the belief that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. The Jews denied that name. The Jews refused to submit to that name. Except those to whom God granted the privilege of faith, the general populace of the Hebrews denied the gospel. And they hated the Christian church. And they attacked them. If they couldn't kill them, they got them in trouble with the Roman authorities. They followed them throughout the empire. As you remember, everywhere Paul went, there were a group of Jewish people right behind him, stirring up the crowds, trying to contradict everything he preached because they hated the name Jesus. They were not offended at the morals of the Christian church. They couldn't be because they were identical to their own. They could not be offended at the nobility and the decency and the honor and the lifestyle of these Christians because they were very similar in morality to the Jews. What they hated was this offensive name of Jesus Christ. But the Lord commends them and says, In the midst of that opposition, you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. I know your works. And to that faithfulness, he makes some promises. Now, what I want to do tonight, as we lead into the promises, is I want to just state a couple of simple reasons for keeping the word of Christ. I want to remind you of why it's so important that we do keep his word and not deny his name. Whether it is at the specific point of proclaiming Christ and Christ alone as the only way to God, or in all the implications that grow out of that truth of Christ and all the truth as it is in Jesus, there are some simple reasons for keeping his word. First of all, the nature of the thing itself. The word of God is what we're talking about. The first reason for keeping this thing is because it's the word of God. You have kept my word. Now, somebody might say, well, this is great. This is Jesus claiming that his word has been kept and he's commending this little church that has listened to him and believed him. But that's a far cry, Pastor, from being keeping the word of God. Well, I direct your attention back to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. And I want you to consider with me again what we're talking about when we talk about the word of Jesus Christ. I'm very aware that we are dealing in a generation in which we often preach to people who may hear a sermon like we heard this morning, dealing with the tendency of people to think that they can get to heaven by their own righteousness and good works, and who have confidence that they need not to hear the gospel and the mercies of God because they are meritoriously uh, in line for God's blessing. But we're dealing in a generation in which there are a lot of people that have no interest in getting to heaven. 
It hasn't even occurred to them that there's such a thing as salvation. They don't need, they're not trying to be saved by works. They're not trying to be saved by grace. They're not trying to be saved. Because they have no thought that there's anything to be saved from. They don't want to be saved from what they're doing. They're not bothered by the way they're living. They're bothered by the consequences, but they're not bothered by the roots of it. Well, I'm aware of that, and so I'm preaching perhaps to some tonight who have no thought that the Word of God in the Bible is true. I don't care. I'm going to tell you the truth anyway. My problem is not that you don't believe it. That's your problem. I'm not here to try to prove to you that it's the Word of God, but I declare to you that it is. And I want to show you what the Bible says about that. John chapter 5, verse 30. The Lord Jesus speaking. I can do nothing of myself. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous. Because I seek not mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Where did Jesus come from? Well, he was sent. And the Bible says that he was sent from heaven. He was before he was born. He wasn't man. He was God. And the Father sent the Son into the world to become man. And as man in this world, he never did or said anything that he didn't get from God the Father. He was speaking always and judging always in accord with the mind of God from which he had come. It was impossible for him to do otherwise. Now in chapter 8 of John's Gospel, if you'll turn over there, we see a development of this concept. You see, it was crucial as the Lord confronted these Jews in Jerusalem in John's Gospel that he make it clear to them who he was and what his authority was. In John 8, verse 26, he says to them, he just told them, you're going to die in your sins. He says in verse 26, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. Howbeit, he that sent me is true. Now remember the phrase in the letter to the Philadelphian church. I am he that is true. And the same kind of designation here. He that sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these speak I in the world. So what Jesus is saying is that when he speaks, they're God's words which he's speaking. And then in verse 28, Jesus therefore said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am. And that I do nothing of myself, but as the Father taught me, I speak these things. Then in verse 38, I speak the things which I have seen with my Father. And you also do the things which you heard from your Father. They're just two, two segments of information available in the world. They either come from God or they come from the devil. The world can be divided up neatly into two categories. Those that speak the truth from God and those that speak the lie from the devil. Not easy always to detect and discern what, what, where it's coming from, but that's what Jesus is saying. What I speak comes from God. What you speak comes from your Father. It's only natural that you speak what you hear from your Father. Now notice, he is identifying himself 
with the Father, to whom he is the Son. And then in John's revelation, we read at the conclusion of every letter, let him that has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we have the Father sending the Son into the world with clear statements of things to say, and he says nothing other than what he's heard and seen of the Father. So we have the Father speaking, the Son speaking, and the Spirit speaking. And in the Revelation, here is the Lord speaking to the church, saying, let him that has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. So you have the Son and the Spirit identified as the author of all that's being said. So the words that Jesus is speaking to the church in Philadelphia is considered to be the words that the Spirit is speaking to the Philadelphian church, the third person of the Trinity. And going back from John's Gospel and other texts, we assume also that he considers that whatever he is speaking to the Philadelphian church comes from his Father. So you have the whole Godhead here seen as speaking to the church. The Word, which is my Word, the Lord says, is God's Word. That's why it's important for us to keep it. It's the Word of God. But it's also unchangeable or immutable. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the nature of this word is that it is God's word and it's unchangeable. That's critical. The bishop would change it. You can't change it. Not one jot or tittle will pass away till all is fulfilled. The smallest little marks in the Hebrew and in the, in, the, in the Hebrew language, the little iota, the little yot, will not change. The little tittle, which is less significant than that, won't change until it's all fulfilled. That's how completely sanctified and secured and sealed is the Word of God. We don't need to keep abreast of the age. That would be reckless. That would be suicide spiritually. We need to keep abreast with the book. I'm not afraid of the bishop and his ilk. I'm grieved over it. I'm ired at it. My indignation wells up in me, and I want to raise my voice all the more to put down that stuff. Those are mouths that must be stopped. Subverting whole households, teaching things which they ought not. But I'm not impressed with this spirit of the age, or keeping abreast of the times, or making the Bible relevant. The problem is not that the Bible is irrelevant to our times. The problem is we are not relating to the Bible. It's the Word of God that doesn't change. And I'll tell you, men don't change either. They're the same as they've always been. They're still trying to change that which is unchangeable. And they're trying to protect that which they ought to change. The nature of the thing itself. It's the word of God. It's unchangeable. And it's true. Hebrews tells us that our God is a God that cannot lie. Cannot lie. Cannot lie. The word of God is such that it comes out of the mouth of one who had no alternative but to speak the truth because his holy nature could not do anything other than that. Whatever comes out of his mouth is true. 
The Lord Jesus is speaking to the Philadelphian church and saying, I am he that is true. The reason the word of God is purely true is because the author of that word is true. Out of the heart proceed what men think and say and do. Same with God. Out of God's great heart proceeds nothing that it can contradict what he is. The scriptures, the words from the mouth of Christ are true. So we ought to keep that word. Now some of you are laboring under a deception. You don't know that the Bible's true. Yeah, there's some parts of it you like and some parts of it you're not so sure about and some parts of it you don't like. You've got a problem. Because you're dealing very slovenly and very, very loosely with the truth of God. The God that made you has spoken. And you're not heeding his word as you ought. You're not listening. You're shutting your ears to the only hope of your salvation. And I call you to repent of that sin and submit yourself to that which is true, which is unchangeable, which is the word of God. But not only the nature of the thing itself gives us reason to keep it, also the implications for not keeping the word of God. There are certain things that come upon people who, when they hear the Bible, turn from it. The first one is this. Those that do not receive the truth readily will believe a lie readily. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is a specific reference to a historical event or a historical process. We'll not have the time to enter into what all it means, but at least it means that there was coming a time in Christian history in which a great host of professing Christians were going to depart from the true faith. And that what we were going to have was a Christian church that was no longer really Christian, and yet it called itself Christian. What we're going to have is a great horde of people around the world who consider themselves to be Christians, and the media considers them to be Christians. You hear the news from the Middle East, and you've got the Muslims and the Christians. But if you met any one of those Christians, you'd have real problems identifying them with the kind of Christians that we mean when we're talking about the Bible. What the media means by Christian is anything that ain't Muslim. It includes Roman Catholics, it includes the cults, it includes the heretical sects, it includes anything. But mainly, it's the folks that know how to function in the higher social echelons who happen not to be Muslims, who can speak in such a way as not to offend anybody and can act in such a way as not to draw attention to anything but themselves. That's Christians. And they're at war with the Muslims. We don't know who's going to win. What a shame. So this thing predicts a time in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 in which there's a great host of professing Christians who have denied the essence of the faith. There's been a great falling away. Now look at what it says in verse 2. Or no, verse 3. He doesn't want them to be deceived, to beguiled. Let no man beguile you in any way, for it, or the second coming of Christ and the gathering of his people to him in the heavens, will not be except the falling away come first. That word falling away means apostasy, leaving the faith, departing from the faith. The falling away was anticipated by Paul. And Christ is not going to return, he said, to the Thessalonians until that happened. 
This word falling away is not a reference to the rapture of the church. This is not the church falling out of the world and being taken away before the tribulation period. That has nothing to do with what this is talking about. That's not what the word means. It cannot be what the word means. It is the word which means falling away from the faith, apostasia. And until that comes, he cannot come. And then he describes this man of sin, this personage of lawlessness who's going to come and be revealed. <clears throat> who in verse 4 opposes and exalts himself against all that is called God, etc. He goes on down and says in verse 8 that that shall be revealed the lawless one whom the Lord Jesus shall slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to naught by the manifestation of his coming. And then he describes him a bit. He says, even he whose coming is according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Whatever this is that he's referring to as the man of lawlessness, the way he's going to get into people's brains and the way he's going to make his doctrine seem believable and the way he's going to lead the falling away is that he's going to um, be able to do things that most men can't do. Lying wonders. Perhaps it means uh, pretending to work miracles and magical arts that are claimed as miracles but really aren't, or perhaps they are real miracles designed to deceive. But whatever, lying wonders, power, signs, satanic help, and with all deceit of unrighteousness for them that are perishing. But why are they perishing? Because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, for what cause? Because they did not receive the love of the truth. God, not the devil, God sends them a working of error that they should believe a lie. Now, do you, let's just stop it there and look at the simple thing he's saying. I don't have time to develop the whole text, but what he's saying is they didn't believe the truth. They didn't receive the love of the truth. So what's the result? As a result of their not receiving the love of the truth, God shuts them up to the lie and bring, makes them believe a lie. The truth came. They turned away from it. Maybe they had embraced it, professed it, like those in Hebrews 6 who had tasted the powers of the world to come and then fallen away. God gave them a spirit of error and caused them now to believe a lie. Now, what right does God have to make men believe a lie? Well, the logic of this text gives God the right to do it justly because they didn't receive the love of the truth. The order here is because they didn't receive a love of the truth that they might be saved, God's given them a lie to believe, and they believe it. God's the one that's put in their hearts the desire and the readiness to believe the lie. The first implication of not heeding the word of God is that you will then believe something else. You don't receive the truth, you'll receive a lie. Now, if that's not enough to scare you, we'll move on. I would trust that that ought to shock you. Well, you say, well, I'm not sure I agree with it. That's fine. Read your Bible, though. At least understand that what you're not agreeing with is the plain teaching of Scripture. Don't excuse yourself by saying, well, that's what that preacher thinks, and there's other churches I can go to where they don't think that. Fine. Just understand that ultimately you're going to have to answer to the book. 
And that leads us to our second implication for not heeding the word. (laughs) It brings the wrath of God upon you. Now, you see, the worst thing that can happen in this world to a man is that God give him over to a lie. That's really the first working of the wrath of God. God gives men's brains the belief of a lie. They don't love the truth. They won't glorify God. They're not thankful to God. They'll not honor Him or bless Him or recognize Him or give Him glory. So what does He do? He gives them a brain that doesn't think of God. They don't like to have God in their minds, so God gives them a mind that doesn't have God in it. He gives them a mind that never considers God. He gives them over and gives them up to what the Bible calls a reprobate mind. A useless, shelved, dead, gone, helpless, hopeless mind. They wanted that. God gives them what they want. Don't you ever say to God, I don't want to hear this anymore. Don't you ever say to God, I don't want to hear the Bible. Don't say to God, this is a part of the truth I can't bear. Don't say to God, I can't endure those tapes. That preacher gets too close to home. Don't you say to God, I don't want to go to that church. They bother my conscience. You say that, God may hear you, take you up on it, and relieve you of ever hearing that again. Brethren, there are a lot of things worse than having to endure the truth. Love your soul enough to go through those times in which the truth is dragging you through all sorts of misery and raking you over the coals so that you can get to the other side redeemed and saved and free. We have a generation of people that cannot endure sound doctrine. They can't stand it. They can stand about an hour of it. Some don't even sit through the whole thing. But as soon as they're free from this building, that foyer, there are more experiences that take place in that foyer than I could tell you about. I ought to write a book sometime on foyer. But there are electrical things happen out there. Eyeballs do all sorts of things out there. I'm not ridiculing people. I'm just describing what's going on in the spiritual war. There are people who don't want to see me when they come out there. They don't want ever to see me again. They don't want to be here again. They're so relieved that the door's opened and they can get out. And largely it's because that God got near the conscience in answer to the prayers of a people. And they don't want that. They want to sit comfortably, hear nice religious thoughts. Perhaps they have a feeling that they're not finding all there is to life and they'd like to check into this church and curiously listen for a bit to see if perhaps they can, in their eclectic choosing, get a little from here that might help them find happiness and peace. But then they come here and we're not throwing tidbits uh, to be mixed with the recipe of eclecticism. We are declaring that the whole truth is, is in Jesus, is in the Bible, and that outside that they will perish. That's not what they wanted to hear. So the wrath of God begins to come on people by His giving them their desire. Don't make me hear this. God doesn't make them hear it. But it's worse than that. In Second Thessalonians chapter 1, a dreadful passage of Scripture comes to our sight. Second Thessalonians 1, <clears throat> verse 6. If so be that it is a righteous thing with God to recompense affliction to them that afflict you, and to you that are afflicted, rest with us at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with the angels of his power in flaming fire. Now, here's what's described so far. Saints in Thessalonica being afflicted. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll notice 
they are being afflicted by Jews, opposing the gospel in Thessalonica, about whom Paul states later that the wrath of God has come upon those Jews to the full. And he says here that they are afflicting you, and when Jesus comes with his angels in flaming fire, he's going to give you rest from this affliction, comforting the Thessalonians. Well, that's a joyous note. And in that coming, they have great hope. But he continues. Not only when he comes with the angels in flaming fire, is he going to give rest to those that are being afflicted by those Jews that oppose him. But he also, in verse 8, is going to be rendering vengeance to them that know not God and to them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus, who shall suffer punishment. Now, they've obeyed not the gospel of our Lord Jesus. At least it says this. They heard it. They rejected it. They didn't obey it. They didn't embrace it. They didn't receive it. They didn't believe it. They didn't take it. They obeyed it not. At least it says that. And what are they going to do because of that? They're going to suffer punishment. But what kind of punishment? How much punishment? What degree of punishment? Even eternal destruction from the face of the Lord and from the glory of His might. They don't want to recognize His Lordship. They don't want to give Him glory. So he will eternally separate them from seeing it. From the face of his glory and might. What an irony. That forever and ever in the burning flaming pits of hell. Men get what they wanted. Separation from God. You heed not the word of God. You keep not the word of God. You're going to go to hell. And whole denominations are on their way because they've not kept his word and they've denied his name. It's a living shame for an evangelical Christian to be ashamed of Jesus and his name. God holds very dear to his vast heart his own precious word. To spurn what God has said is to spurn God. Those who do not believe in and obey the God of the whole Bible have no true God. There is no God except the one who breathed the Holy Scriptures. Who among us is prepared to give lip service to the love of God? but select the things that God says which we will obey and the things that we'll disregard. To reject or to discard his word is to deny his name. To keep his word is to confess his name. Brethren, may there be none among us who follow the line of this bishop and his kind and begin to select what portions of Scripture are worthy of us. So we've seen the nature of the thing itself as the word of God, immutable and true. The implications of not heeding it in that we believe a lie and bring the wrath of God upon our heads. In the third place, and finally, a reason for keeping the word is the reward that is given for keeping his word and denying not his name. 
And this is the central concern of our sermon. I've divided it up into two parts. First of all, the reward, companionship, and knowledge of the triune God. Reward for keeping his word and not denying his name. The intimate, abiding, and fulfilling companionship and knowledge of the triune God. Now, there's a hint given in the passage in Revelation when he says, I will write upon him the name of my God and mine own new name and the name of the city of my God. A very intimate picture of writing upon the man God's name. Of implanting it, as it were, like a brand into his flesh. All that is God and all that is known of God in God's name is to be written upon the man who keeps his word and denies not his name. You don't deny his name, you get that name written on you. You get branded with it forever. But in order to see this worked out in conjunction with our Lord's mind, I want you to turn with me back to the Gospel of John. I could lay claim here to continuing in my series on John's Gospel and sneak it in in the midst of Revelation and do two things at once. Because in chapter 14 of John's Gospel, there are these recurring promises from our Lord Jesus to those that are true to his word. The intimate, abiding, and fulfilling companionship and knowledge of the triune God. In John 14, verse 15, we read, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father. Now, this is, if you keep my commandments because you love me, here's what you get for it. I will pray my Father. He shall give you another comforter that he may be with you forever. You see the intimate, abiding companionship with the Spirit of God? Now it's Jesus praying to the Father who sends the Spirit to abide with you forever. Intimate, abiding companionship. Read on. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Perhaps one of the most pitiful voids in the life of the unbeliever. Perhaps the essence of the pity of the void is that he cannot receive the Spirit of God. The man who doesn't follow the Lord Jesus and obey the gospel has no right to the Spirit of God. A high, high, high privilege beyond our ability to explain and just talk about. Some of us that have been Christians for almost for a major part of our life, have already grown so accustomed to his abiding presence that we we forget how precious it is. We've forgotten what it's like not to have him. And I thank God that times he withdraws enough to make me remember what it would be like. But what can you... Brethren, you know what it feels like, don't you? You know what it's like when you have those times and you you just can't even pray. You know how terrible and horrifying that is to a saint who's tasted the Lord is good and then one day can't taste anymore. You know what that's like, don't you? If you've been with the Lord at any time at all, you know what that's like. Those seasons, perhaps, in which the Lord seems to have left. And if you didn't know your Bible, you'd think you did. 
And everything in you and everything around you testifies that God's not there and how terrifying that is. What if God has left? What do you think it's like for those in whom He's never dwelt? Now, they don't know it. They're in the dark. But it's just like seeing a man lying in a pool of his own blood, but because he's been dulled by drugs, doesn't know he's bleeding to death. The Lord is speaking of the abiding of the Spirit whom the world cannot receive. For it beholds Him not, neither knows Him. You know Him. You see it? The intimate, abiding, fulfilling companionship and knowledge of the triune God. You know Him, for He abides with you and shall be in you. How do you get more intimate than that? In you. The language of union with Christ in the Scripture. In you. The promise of Christ to those who love Him and keep His word. In you. I will not leave you desolate, He says. I come to you. You see, that it's not a division up of God in some way. Christ is sending the comfort of the Spirit of truth. And Christ Himself is coming. I come to you. Well, which is it? Is it the Spirit or is it Christ? Yes. Yes. I don't understand that, Pastor. Neither do I. But here's the triune God. We've got two-thirds. Now let's look further. Yet a little while, and the world beholds me no more. But you behold me. Because I live, you shall live also. In that day you shall know that I am in the Father... And you in me, and I in you. Now here's Christ in the Father, Christ in us, and we know it because the Spirit is in us and with us. Intimate, abiding, fulfilling companionship and knowledge of the triune God. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father. And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Here's the Father and the Son and the Spirit through whom Jesus manifests himself to him. The simple promise of an intimate, abiding, and fulfilling companionship and knowledge of the triune God. There's the gift of the Spirit, the presence of Christ. The knowledge of God, the love of the Father and the Son. Whereas in Romans 5, we're told that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. We've got a great promise here. A wonderful promise. Remember, I also said a fulfilling companionship and knowledge. Look with me at chapter 15, verse 11. These things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. There's nothing that exists that compares to this experience of the fullness of the joy of the intimate, abiding, eternal, comforting, fulfilling companionship and knowledge of God. 
It's difficult to preach it because I don't understand it. I've tasted enough of it to know what I'm saying is right and good. Haven't tasted enough of it to comprehend it or explain it. But I know it enough to know that it's the best you can have. You don't want to be without the knowledge of and the fellowship of God. You want to have that. But it's difficult to preach also because the people that don't know it and don't have it aren't impressed with what I'm saying. It doesn't, doesn't ring your bell. It holds no interest for you. You're not, no big deal. You can't, you can't understand. I'm speaking to a brick wall because you don't know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm talking about, but you don't. And unless you, God gives you wisdom and a hunger for righteousness, you'll not search it out and find it. The Bible promises that he that seeks for me with all his heart will find me. The Lord promises that. He that comes to God must believe that God exists and that God rewards those that diligently seek him. And if you have that mind and you want to know God and you long to know the God who made you, God will let you find him. And you'll discover he's been searching for you the whole time. But I may be speaking to some who are just thinking, who wants the knowledge of God? Who cares about intimate communion with God? God. What is that anyway? As Pilate would say, what is truth? You might say, what is God? Why am I? Pastor, that's, I want happiness. I want fulfillment. I want purpose in my life. I want deliverance from my problems. I want to break some bad habits. I want to get things straight. I want to avoid the consequences of my behavior. I want somebody to love me. I want to get over my loneliness. I'm, I'm empty. That's what I want. I don't, I don't talk about God. I don't want religion. I want something better than that. Brethren, that's what I'm talking about. All that comes with the territory. All that comes in the part of the package. In fact, there is none of that other apart from the intimate, abiding, fulfilling companionship and knowledge of the true God. But in the second place, the way I've divided up this reward for keeping his word, the Lord promises to those that keep his word and deny not his name, sure protection, secure position, and irresistible fruitfulness in the service of God. Sure protection, Secure position and irresistible fruitfulness in the service of God. Back in Revelation chapter 3, in verse 10, the promise of sure protection. Here's a church that has had opponents. It's been in a war, a spiritual war. It has taken the hard road of believing something that the whole world thinks is foolishness. A little band of faithful Christians who've lost family and friends and standing because they believe this stuff called the gospel and embrace it and love it. And they do things that the rest of the world thinks are self-destructive. They give up good jobs because the job would require them to work on Sundays and they won't deny the Lord's Day. And they lose money because of it. They lose friends because there are certain places they won't go anymore and there are certain activities they'll not participate in anymore. This little group of Christians who, for the sake of a book that most of the world thinks is just another religious book, have lost a lot. And they have enemies. 
And they've got folks who have a conscience enough to know that what these Christians believe is true who don't want to hear it anymore. And they want to get rid of that sound, and they want to get rid of those that are making that sound, and so they're out to snuff you out. It always goes that way in history. If they can't stop their ears to you, they'll try to stop your mouth. If they can't stop your mouth, they'll try to move your body out of its place. If you can't move you, they'll try to eliminate you. Any bare knowledge of church history will bear me out. We're headed there, brethren. They're out to stop what we're saying. They're using all their sophistry. But when that fails, they'll go to more direct and frontal attacks. They're already putting preachers in jail in this country for things as small as corporal punishment. They're already putting folks in jail for refusing to send their children to schools that teach things that are lies. What will be the next stage? Well, this little church was under some pressure. And in verse 10, the Lord says, Because you did keep my word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which is to come upon the whole world to try them that dwell on the earth. There's some secure protection granted to these people and promised to them. Now, somebody said, well, what is this trial? Well, I do not believe that he's referring to a seven-year period at the end of Christian history called the Great Tribulation. You who were with us in our lengthy study of the book of Revelation already know that that can't be what this means because that's not, that doesn't, the time that thing as such doesn't exist, not the way that many believe it exists. I doubt that it means that it's the last period of human history because he promised it to the Philadelphian church as though they were going to be living in the midst of that trial, and yet God somehow was going to protect them from it, just as he did the children of Israel who lived in Goshen when the plagues came on Egypt. Some kind of distinction made between them and others who were going to fall prey to this trial. There have been many suggestions made by the commentators, but I would lend my ear most readily to two. They were right on the verge of the greatest pressured time of the Domitian persecution in the Roman Empire. One of the two perhaps greatest of all the vast persecutions of the ten persecutions of the Roman Caesars. And when Domitian let out all his fury against both Jews, by the way, and Christians, Philadelphia was right in the midst of an area in which much of it occurred. The Lord is predicting to them, apparently, and he uses terminology like, I come quickly, and it may well be that that phraseology is not referring to the second coming, but to his coming in judgment in this particular situation, a visitation from Christ in judgment. I come quickly. You people have kept my word. Don't worry about what is going to happen when I come and let out my judgment. That may well be. I, I lean to that interpretation. There's the thought here that something's about to happen in the world, and unless the Lord protects us, we're going to get wiped out by it. History says that the Church of Philadelphia was the only one of these seven that endured. As after the second or third century, when Ephesus turned the worship of Diana into the worship of Mary, and then later disappeared, Philadelphian church lasted through all the early Muslim uprisings and all the uh, Muslim overthrow until finally, even when the Muslims took the city in the Middle Ages, Philadelphia was still a significantly important city where Christians dwelled and maintained their identity and were not persecuted. 
And like, actually, the Muslims named it the city of God. And I believe that there's a lot of that intrinsic in this prophecy. But whether I'm accurate in my understanding of the meaning or not, the Lord is simply saying that what's going to happen to the whole world, I'm not going to let happen to you. And there's a secure promise of protection in that. What for? Because they kept his word and didn't deny his name. That's a precious thing to know. I lay claim to it. I don't have to fear what man shall do to me. And I, I want to be able to stand and look at my Lord in the eye and say, I kept your word. I didn't deny your name. I want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's my desire. That's my prayer. I don't want to be numbered among those who shrunk back under fire and neglected a bit of the truth. Failed to preach some of it because I might lose my church or lose my house or lose my popularity. Brethren, I have no desire to go on Good Morning America. I have no interest in being the world's spokesman for Christianity. I want to preach and love the truth and I want to have a church following doing the same thing. I want to hear the Lord interview his people and commend them. There's a sure protection promise. But there's also the promise of secure position. Verse 12 says, He that overcomes, and that literally in this text means overcomes in this sense of keeping his word and denying not his name against all the pressure to do so. He that continues and keeps my word and denies not my name, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out thence no more. There is the permanent branding of the glories of God on the brow of his people. Making them a pillar in the temple of God and they'll never go out again. That's a fairly secure position. A reward for keeping his word. And overcoming all the efforts of the enemy to make us deny it and shrink back from it. Sounds too simple to be true. Everybody says, ah, that's nothing new. It's precious, brethren. It's precious. It's a great reason to keep his word. It's a great reason for a church to guard the faith. Once and for all delivered to the saints. And not switch and change it every generation. It's great reason for us not to bow to the awesome pressure of feminism. To force the church through legal means to hire women as pastors when the Bible says they're not supposed to do so. It's great reason to resist the onslaught of the pressure to lower the standards of our evangelism for the sake of winning a few. If they don't believe the gospel as it was delivered by the mouth of the Lord and his prophets, they must perish. We may not be able to save them. We cannot save them by changing the gospel a bit. You're not, dis you're not sent to make the gospel believable. You're sent to preach it. Only God can grant a man faith in it. We must resist with every fiber of our redeemed humanity this awesome Christian pressure to lower the standard of church membership. 
and to open the gates for every brand of heresy and immorality in the name of the grace of God. We must resist the tendency to be imprecise in our theology, not to think it's important to know the confession that summarizes biblical truth, not to bow, not to give ourselves to the study of the things that are preached in this pulpit because we somehow don't think it's that crucial. Brethren, it's that crucial. If you want to be a pillar in the house of your God, and if you want to be securely positioned so you don't have to go out of there anymore, you better keep his word and endure to the end and overcome. He said, Pastor Allen, are you telling me that I'm going to miss heaven if I let women pastor? I'm telling you that if at any point of God's word you decide you're going to chunk it because you have a preference in order to get along in your culture, you've, let, you've jumped onto the path of utter apostasy. And unless God shows unusual mercy to you and turns you, you are going to go to hell. Finally, the Lord promises irresistible fruitfulness in the service of God. And that's what most people recognize in the letter to the Philadelphian church, the open door. I have opened the door. Nobody can shut it. Irresistible fruitfulness. You're familiar with some of the texts in the epistles, 1 Corinthians 15, 9. 2 Corinthians 2.12, Colossians 4.3, where Paul refers to a door opened. In one case, an effectual door. In another case, a door opened to us effectual with many adversaries. That was what the Lord promised the Philadelphians. Notice that it's a door that's opened by Christ. Therefore, nobody can shut it. One of the rewards for keeping his word is increased opportunities to preach it. Brethren, I live my life. There's not a day that goes by in my life. There's hardly a private prayer that I pray that is not somehow regulated by a dream and a hope and a confidence that because we have chosen the path of truth against the odds, we're going to have more and more opportunities to preach it. I believe that, generally speaking, God is committed to getting that truth out. And when he sees men willing to pay the price to preach it, he grants them privileges to do so. This promise to the church of Philadelphia is the promise of an open door by virtue of their keeping his word. They have proven themselves to be worthy of more opportunity. To whom, uh, who is faithful in little, will be given much. The Lord spoke of Abraham in Genesis. He said, now I know. That he will train his children after him and instruct them to keep the commandments and the statutes and the laws so that I may accomplish the things I promised to him. Now I can trust myself to Abraham. That's, what God, that's, the, that's the language of Genesis. God put him to the test. Abraham passes the test. And then God just pours it out on him. And nobody can stop the blessing of God on Abraham. I believe, brethren, that I have the warrant of Scripture to promise to this church that generally speaking, if we maintain over the period of years consistency in embracing and proclaiming and loving and obeying the truth of God at all costs, we will see enlarged fruitfulness to it and greater opportunities for it. 
That is the general pattern of history. That is the promise of Scripture. And it matches up with my understanding of the heart of God. Do you really believe that God is going to grant increased opportunities for the lie and deny that to those who love His truth? He says to the Philadelphian church, which I do still believe is as close to the kind of situation most Reformed Baptist churches are in today as any in the world. He says, I have set before you an open door because you've denied not my name and you've kept my word. Brethren, I anticipate more privileges and opportunities for preaching the word in this church and beyond. I anticipate more missionaries to send and support. I anticipate more young men to go to the academy and prepare for the Christian ministry. I anticipate more elders here preaching and going out and establishing Bible studies. I anticipate a day when we can plant churches. I anticipate enlargement of our vision, enlargement of our usefulness. I pray for it. I will cease not to pray for that and press for that till you get rid of me by God's grace. If you want to sit on your laurels, you're not going where I'm going. I'm not pushing you. You've noticed we're not having gimmicks. I've not made you start any churches. I'm not running headlong and strategizing a plan out there for how many baptisms we're going to have the next year. Nothing of the sort. But in my prayers, I'm asking God, enlarge the place of our tent as you may be able to trust us. As we pass the test of faithfulness to your word. It's one of the reasons that sometimes I ask. Why it takes so painfully long for God to enlarge it. I wonder sometimes if we as a congregation. If God were to reveal what he knows about all our hearts. Really are united in our love for the whole truth. Maybe. We don't know what God could do in opening up a door because we haven't made it clear that all the truth is ours forever and we belong to it and we'll not release it. He's opened the door and none can shut it. Well, bear with me just a couple of more minutes. I want to bring this to a close. This open door is related to spiritual and ministerial opportunity. But it's also an open door to victory over our enemies. In verse 9 he says, I will give of the synagogue of Satan of them that say they're Jews and they're not, but do lie. I'll make them come and worship before your feet and know that I've loved you. This may be a reference to God's plan to save many of those Jews in Philadelphia and bring them right there to do the same thing and stand for the same truth. And there's some evidence that that may have happened historically. Some of the people that oppose us, brethren, may turn out to join us. Saul did. I mean, how many churches do you think were praying for his conversion? How many of you think even thought to pray such a thing? I mean, you, you, your nature would not want to pray for a fella that's killing your brother and sister and cousins and dragging off kids and families to jail. That's not, you'd sort of want to pray God kill him. You'd certainly become very familiar with the imprecatory prayers of the Psalms and want to use them. God saved him. He that persecuted the church is now preaching the things he persecuted. I consider sometimes prime targets for the faith, those that hate it the most. And the church ought to pray for it. God may save a lot of people who today think we're nuts and tell people not to come to this church because we're something wrong with us. 
But also it may mean that God is so going to display his favor on his people who are faithful to the word that it simply stops the mouths of their adversaries. I'm going to make them to know that I love you, he said to Philadelphia. I don't know how and when he's going to do that, but he's going to make it known. Maybe in the last judgment. Maybe somehow even now. But the promise is that if you keep my word, all the rest of them that think you're little, small, insignificant, and idiotic are going to come to see that God loves you. That God's on your side. We're not to go out and tell people that. We're not to brag about that. We're not to stick our chest out and make, make sure they know that. God will make know that in his own good time. You stay true. But at least this promise of victory over our enemies as a part of this open door is that it means God is going to vindicate the truth that we love and is going to vindicate those who love it. Ultimately, in the final judgment, God's going to vindicate what we loved and preached against all our adversaries and all those who detract and all those who gainsay and all those who would attempt to undermine us, lie about us, slander us, misquote us. God's going to vindicate what we preached if we preached the truth and held to it. The Apostle Paul says that someday we're going to judge angels. We're going to stand in the position of the favor of God when God is consigning the evil angels to their everlasting chains of darkness, which, uh, to their pits of hell for which they've been reserved. We're going to be standing, as it were, in judgment over them in that day. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Where will you be when some are confessing that by force, as it were? You will be in that band of those who confessed it gladly. And there will be, in, in that sense, great judgment upon those who opposed you. I want again to direct your attention to Isaiah before I draw quickly to some concluding application, I appreciate your patience. But I want the church to get it settled in the mind that we're going to stay where we are in the truth. We're going to learn all we can of the truth and we're going to stick to the course by God's grace. I want you to get that and understand it because God's made promises to us. I want to have those things fulfilled. In Isaiah 49... Verse 23, these passages in Isaiah are just delightful as he's in the midst of talking to a nation that's rebelled against God and is about to see God's great wrath come upon it. In all the midst of that, he has these promises of messianic blessing. In verse 23, kings shall be your nursing fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. And you shall know that I am the Lord. And they shall wait. They that wait for me shall not be put to shame. Brethren, I don't believe this is to be consumed on our lusts as we sit and hey, look forward to folks coming and slaving. That's not the intent of this language. This is not the Lord setting us up as prima donnas to take advantage of everyone else groveling at our feet and finally get all the notoriety and pride and position we always wanted. That's not the point. Christians can't stomach that anyway. They're too humble to deal with such a thing. They wouldn't want that. This is language that's figurative to describe the relative relationship between those that have entered the favor of God, the blessing of God, the position of God, the protection of God, as opposed to those who, as it were, are at their feet in the dust because they rejected that truth. 
This is a promise of the vindication of truth in those that loved it and believed it. I want to be on that side of things, brethren. I don't want to be left on the other side. It's not because I'm ashamed to lick in people's feet. Because I want to be in the approbation of my God. And the relative relationship between me and the truth is what's going to determine that. Now, I hasten to draw some application. Because there's some here that I believe are not saved. There's some here that probably are on the way to hell tonight unless God turns you. And I'm a faithful man at least to the point that I would not want to let you go without giving you a warning. If you stand outside the circle of those tonight who would identify with the church at Philadelphia in the love of the truth. If you have never embraced Christ and the testimony of Christ in the scripture. God says that you are outside saving grace and that you are headed for disaster. And that your everlasting destiny is to be the burning pits of hell and separation from God. Do not argue whether that's fair or not. My friend, that's what the Bible says. Don't waste your time discussing and debating with the, with the God who made you whether he's acting fairly. Run into the tower that secures you from that flame. Run into the protective arms of him who welcomes you and invites you. Repent of your unbelief of the Bible. Repent of your wretched ignorance of Scripture because you didn't open it. Humble your heart before the God who has revealed His will, who has promised His saving mercy to those who would have it. Humble yourself and say, Lord, forgive me that I haven't heeded Your Word. Lord, don't let it be with me as it will be with many who You give to the lie, who will not be able ever to hear the truth again. Lord, may it not be so. Oh God, reveal Yourself to my heart. Make me know the truth. Help me believe the truth. Don't let these things come upon me. If they be true what this man is preaching, God have mercy on me, a sinner. You will find a a ready God to hear that kind of prayer and to help you and save you. Some of you sit here tonight and you're bored and you're restive under preaching. You're not used to it. We understand it. You must give us a little bit of sympathy though. When we get our chance to preach these things to you, knowing that all eternity lies out in front of your soul, and we're a little afraid that maybe you won't come back again, we don't want to cut you short. We don't want to cheat you. We don't want you to stand in the judgment where God's judgment wrath begins to lick at your ankles and look at us and ask, why didn't you press a little more? May God help you to be among those who deny not the name of his dear son, whom to deny is to bring the greatest wrath of his father upon you. May God help you tonight to stop what you're doing with your life. Stop the motives for which you are doing what you're doing. And run to Christ humbly and ask for mercy. May God help you. And may he set your soul free from your sins. And may he secure this church in the truth forever. Let us pray together. O oh, our God and Father, the terrible judgment of those who have known the truth and departed from it and would teach others to do so. Lord, we tremble at what awaits men who wear the cloth who have a form of religion and have denied the power thereof. 
Lord, we must give you thanks that at this point you have not given us over to that. We ask you that you would not ever allow us to let slip those things we've heard. Oh, God, give us grace that we may give the more earnest heed to those things we've heard, lest at any time we should drift away from them. Oh, God, our Father, thank you for the truth as it is in Jesus. Bind it to our hearts and us to it. And hear our prayer for those who are in our midst who do not know it or love it. Turn them, Lord. Plant it in their hearts. Write it upon them. And make them your own. In the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.